1: Eric Marcus here Eric it's Anthony how are you I'm fine Anthony uh, a gorgeous day here in New York City
2: yes it's gorgeous I'm only an hour
1: from you I'm down the shore ah so. uh, uh, no, you're not far away at all
2: no in the asway park
1: yeah uh, well a beautiful day and the only bad thing in the air is uh, the virus
2: <laughs> exactly Actually. Um, Thank you for co- uh, having this conversation. It will be um, so excited to put on the podcast.
1: Very glad to be on your show.
2: All right. So uh, basically, we'll just start. And then uh, I like my guests to introduce themselves and tell them about themselves a little bit and what you do with your Making Gay History podcast and so forth. So go for it.
1: I'm Eric Marcus, and I make Making Gay History. Um, and what we do at making gay history is we is we bring LGbtq history to life through the voices of the people who lived it, and principally we do that through the making gay History podcast, which launched in the fall of two thousand and sixteen we've uh, had seven seasons just wrapping up the seventh a um, special covid nineteen season uh, that we didn't plan on, and we have been downloaded i say our episodes have been downloaded in uh, more than 200 countries and territories around the world 3 million times, which I just find astonishing. Um, But my career started long before now. I started writing books uh, back in the 1980s. I've been a journalist uh, for more than 30 years. Uh,
2: So, just so everybody knows, uh, my husband and I are obsessed with your podcast. <laughs> I'm so glad <laughs> you know that. <laughs> we listen to it all the time. And a lot of the work that I do with my podcast for the queer queer youth, queer teens, um, is exactly this. And getting people to speak on behalf of the community that have lived through it or are living through it. Um, knowing, the peop- knowing the people that lived through it, um, which is exactly what you did. Did you ever think that... Um, I know podcasts weren't a thing, but did, did <laughs> no, you No, and
1: I know the question that's coming. No, I if if no. I had known, right. Um, right. when I did my book, uh, Making, it was originally called Making History, second edition, Making Gay History. Um, the first edition was published in 1992, and I was commissioned to write the book. and that It was an oral history of what was then called the Gay and Lesbian Civil Rights Movement. And I thought the stories that I would record, it's an oral history, it's people's stories, would have value one day to scholars, most likely. Hmm. Um, so I inquired with my uh, former boss at CBS News about the kind, the kind of equipment that NPR reporters used. He had been the uh, the founder of Morning Edition and Weekend Edition, um, and so he put me in touch with one of his colleagues who recommended the equipment that I wound up buying. So I had. Uh, broadcast quality recordings with more than 100 people who I interviewed for the two editions of the book. And in 2008, I turned over my collection of 300 hours of audio um, on cassette tapes to the New York Public Library that they, with an agreement that they digitize the entire collection. Wow. Again, no idea that I would be the one to wind up mining my archive. Um, yeah. And that was a story full of serendipity that started with getting fired from my job at the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention in 2015 and then trying to figure out what I was going to do next. Um, And I checked in with the New York Public Library. turned out they'd just finished digitizing my collection. And I did what you do when you're in your mid-50s and not sure what to do next and no one wants to interview you because you're in your mid-50s. You look at um, your assets and what you – uh, what you can call on uh, in terms of your past work to do something different. So um, I had lots of coffee dates, lots of lunch and breakfast dates, and one of those conversations led me to meeting uh, Deb Fowler, who is a co-founder of History and Erased. They develop LGBTQ-inclusive K-12 education materials. Mm. And um, what started out with uh, as an education project with them, where I was going to provide short clips of my interviews morphed very quickly into a podcast, and we launched very quickly after my producer went to podcast school. She was the person who was cutting the audio tape for this education project, and when she got the pieces down to 18 minutes, 15 minutes, she said, this sounds like a podcast. We were going to be doing three- to six-minute pieces for this education project, and she went to podcast school um, and met a producer there named... um, um, Boy, my brain is fried today. Jenna Weiss Berman, Pineapple Street mm. Studios. And she loved what uh, she heard of, uh, of, of what Sara was working on and asked how she could help. And five weeks later, we launched the podcast. Wow. Which is not what I recommend. Um, <laughs> I, do <laughs> no, another pod- I... I do another podcast, and we spent, it was two years in development before we launched it. I do a podcast called Those Who Are There, which is yeah. about the Holocaust. Um, so no I don't recommend it but we didn't know what we were doing nope. and we did it of course um, we launched well, a pod- a, I'm sorry that's the best thing about not knowing what you're doing is you're just doing it and
2: then it just happens and you're like okay yeah we, go. we
1: just we called it from the beginning we called it the little podcast that could and got way more attention than we ever expected and then, then uh, got funding we didn't expect and here we are
2: um, I mean it is like that I mean I know other people so I've visited other places with my podcast. I visited Lambda Legal. They have like historical archives places all over America. And one of them is in San Diego with the Diversionary Theater Company which is a queer theater company since the 80s. And they only use queer artists to encompass all the work that they're creating with plays and musicals. And below them happens to be Lambda um, Archives. And then uh, Fort, Fort Lauderdale has a specific location for queer history as well. And I mean, there are so many there's so many things that capture it. But however, for me specifically, because I love podcasts and I love listening, yours happens to capture something that I don't think people would have ever known about these people. A lot of these people, besides the bigger names that you have, like Ellen DeGeneres. Um, right,
1: right. Um, although even the Ellen episode was at a time of her. I interviewed her at a time of her life when she was not right. the Ellen we know today. So it's a unique perspective uh, on her, and you hear her voice that's very different from the Ellen we come to know from her show.
2: So different. Yeah. yeah the, the, the,
1: the, there's also there's a certain power in in audio and hearing people's voices. Their souls mm-hmm. are embedded in their voices, and it's one thing to read someone's written archive and go through their papers and uh, right. Their letters. It's another to hear them tell their own story, and uh, and most of the people so you noted, powerful. yeah, most people you as you noted uh, in my archive are not people you would know about otherwise. Right. Uh, no. No. It, that's just why I
2: wanted to get you on the podcast in front of the children because it's like uh, specifically the cool thing is actually in New Jersey. We just passed the LGBTQ curriculum plus curriculum um, for schools. Yeah, statewide, and it's you know it's mandated. It you can't cop, you can't get out of it. It has to be taught.
1: Right. Um. I
2: help, and I started working on that in regards to equality the with them, and and trying to work with a huge amount of people to get this thing because there's not enough history, uh, queer history specifically, yeah. obviously. So, um. But during all of that time that you had your career in the 80s, were you out specifically, or were you just interviewing people that were? Oh, I, well, I
1: I came. In yeah, themed that way. Yeah. yeah. The anniversary of my coming out is is coming up on July thirty first, um, nineteen seventy six. So I've been out a long wow. time. I was yeah. seventeen. I was seventeen when I came out. So no, it wasn't the career I imagined. Uh, my principal <laughs> interest was in um, urban planning and urban redevelopment. Principally, mm. um, I was very interested in nineteenth and early twentieth century commercial districts. So this is <laughs> this was. Well, wow, very that. different. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Very
2: different path.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I was—I was—I thought I'd become an architect. I wound up uh, working for Philip Johnson, the, the famous architect who was also gay, although um, not out um, until quite late in his life. Um, yeah. But I grew up in that generation—that bridge generation—that that came out very soon after, or grew up in the 70s, in the period right after Stonewall, when we just assumed that that we could be out. Um, We didn't know, I I didn't know my history at all. I didn't know about the the before Stonewall world. Um, And what I encountered, as did many of the people my age, were people older than us who thought we were crazy, um, were terrified for us that by being out we would ruin our career prospects and be rejected by our families. Um, And for a lot of us, uh, our career prospects were affected by the fact we were out. Um, When I decided to become a journalist, Um, I was one of two people in my class at Columbia University in the journalism school um, in the class of 84 who were out, I think there were about 100 or 150 of us, and we were warned that it could adversely affect our careers. There were no people who were out in mainstream journalism um, when we were in school. And when I worked at CBS Morning News in 1988, um, I was the only out person in the, the Morning News newsroom. Um, that's fascinating to me it's yeah. still fascinating to me I know I hear that all the time and there's
2: loads of stories of course and you've captured the stories but it's always like I said it's always in we said or it's always interesting to hear someone say it out of their mouth that like nobody was out, <laughs> the only one
1: no in fact when I worked at CBS News and this had bearing on, on how I came to do the book um, I discovered after working at Good Morning America and then at CBS News that the people who had the most fun, from my perspective, were the people on the other side of the camera, the correspondents. Um, And they also made a better living, and I come from a working-class background and was very concerned about being able to support myself. So when I was at CBS, I asked to meet with a senior executive who was an alum of Vassar. I, I went to Vassar. Um, class of 80, we would have been having our 40th reunion in two weeks, but not this year. Um, hmm. So I asked her for a meeting because I wanted to find out whether they would ever put an openly gay person on Morning News as a correspondent at CBS um, because I had to make some decisions about my career. I was on a six-month contract. I was negotiating a four-year contract. And I wanted to know what 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 limits there might be or what opportunities there might be because of who I was. And I was very much out at that point. My first book, The Male Couples Guide, had been published in February of '88. Um, And while I wasn't hiding anything, I mean, certainly my colleagues knew I was gay, but my publisher helped things along because they sent a copy of The Male Couples Guide to every single person at CBS News. (laughs) So I came in one Mm. morning to the office, and there was a copy of my book on every desk in the office. So if I had wanted to hide, I couldn't. Um, so I asked for this meeting with a senior executive, and um, and she was evasive when I asked her if they would put an openly gay person on the news and uh, as a correspondent. And finally I said, look, I just need to know for my career, would you put an openly gay person on CBS News as a correspondent? And she said no. And it was around that time I was... Um, I was offered this opportunity to write a proposal for what became Making Gay History. And so I decided to, to take a pass on a four-year contract at CBS News. And had uh, the support of my then partner uh, said, who said, Let's you know, we can do this. And I left my job at CBS and wrote the proposal for the book, which was bought. And the rest is history.
2: Literally. And it it's so... It's just like, uh, it's just, it's just, I love this stuff. I'm such a geek. I literally <laughs> geek out on this kind of stuff because it's so important. Number one, it's so important because stories can't die. They have to live on forever in order for people to see that there's so much of them inside of people that did amazing things or inspiring things in the world, right? So that's why these things are created. That's why, you know, you, you there's no accidents, in my opinion. That's why you didn't do what you were supposed to do in 1988, you were supposed to do the other thing, and it worked out.
1: Apparently, uh, it was, but uh, yeah, apparently it yeah. was something. I mean, you different. don't know that,
2: but it's because you know, you're living it, so it's hard to see that.
1: Right. Um, well, I was
2: I was disappointed.
1: Um, it wasn't the career I wanted. I also, when I first uh, uh, got out of journalism school, I wanted to. I was really interested in politics, and elective office. But I knew I couldn't run for elective office because I was gay, and there was nobody right. who was out. Um, there were a few elected officials in other parts of the country who were openly gay, and certainly. Um, um, uh, Harvey Milk had run in San Francisco and won, but in New York City, uh, which is where I was planning to stay, there was nobody out in city government, so I went to work for the borough president of Queens, and in those days, the borough presidents were very powerful because of the way the city charter was written, and went back in the closet to go out to Queens where I'm from to work for uh, this politician as, assistant pres- as an assistant press secretary, and I lasted six weeks. I couldn't stand it. I couldn't yeah. stand being in the closet uh, mm-hmm. So I left that job and, and was recruited to work in magazine publishing where I had worked before I'd gone to journalism school. Um, so, yeah, you never know where, you, where you're going to wind up. Um, and back to these stories for just a moment. You know, when you, you yeah. see how important it is for, for young people in particular to hear these stories, what I hope young people will take away from these stories is that regular people, not special people, regular people make gay history that mm-hmm. uh, whether it's coming out to your family or as someone wrote to me the other day, um, this is a person who started um, an online queer children 's bookstore um, in uh, Eugene, Oregon, um, or you do something major like you're an attorney who wins wins a major um, uh, gay rights case. Um, regular people do this um, it's not you don't have to be special to change the course of history um at whatever level you wind up doing it
2: right i mean it takes all kinds of human beings to do that it takes anyone to for, for the simplest acts of uh, you know holding someone's hand uh, uh, not the same sex you know like to the that's just that's that's just a powerful statement uh, it's interesting because it's still a powerful statement in 2020 uh, in a lot of countries, and um, even in America, you know, and so, because uh, to this day, I mean, even living in New York City, my husband and I have been spat at and, you know, called faggot, you know, whatever, and, and it's interesting to, uh, and yeah. that's still today. Do you hold so, hands on
1: the street in New York? Yeah, we hold hands a lot of the times, anywhere. Really? I, we would never, yeah. we would never. Okay, I mean. Anyway. It's, we're just, it's just too frightening. We've been we've been together for 20, uh, 26 years. Yeah. But um, and we grew up in a time that was much more frightening for gay people than now, and we're hardwired to yeah. be fearful, even though it's it's less of a concern. And actually, what's happened now is sometimes I'll take uh, Barney's arm on the street, and I think what people see is two old men <laughs> walking down the street, <laughs> arm in arm, and I don't think we're a couple of gay guys. Um,
2: it's They're just he, helping each other out.
1: Yeah, he he has white white hair now. He was he turned very yeah. early, and so they they don't. They see old men on the street um, arm-in-arm, <laughs> arm, which I think is kind of sweet. We forget that that we're um, – Barney and I are both in our 60s now, so we are old.
2: You know, I think if I – not that we don't think of it, because I think of it often, and um, but I know that, like, we're smart about it, too. Like, I know everyone's like, you should do whatever you want, but I'm like, no. I'm going to be smart about it, too. I'm literally not going to go somewhere just to make a point that I'm gay with my husband to, you know, and there are people that do that. um, There are. And,
1: and yeah, more, and I, and I admire their courage and, Mm -hmm. and, but I think just, just don't be stupid. You know, it's not, it's not worth risking your life. Um, For
2: anything. Like for when you travel, even if you travel, say you travel by yourself and you go to certain neighborhoods, like don't even be stupid. Like just be really smart about who you're around, be with like, it just goes across the board. Um,
1: yeah. we, have, we have friends but, who, who travel the world, and they were just in Sudan, and um, um, they were clear with the person planning the trip who they were, but they also made clear that they wanted to take every precaution in the places they were traveling to. And so they, mm-hmm. were, they traveled as two single people staying in single beds um, mm-hmm. because they were traveling to places where it was dangerous to be a, uh, a gay couple, to be recognized as such. Um, yeah. Yeah, so you, just, you can't be stupid. I hear, I hear from a lot of young people because of the podcast, and one of the things that concerns me is uh, when I hear from somebody who's 14 or 15 who says, my parents can never know that I'm gay, and that my friends at school all know I'm gay, and they, and they, they tell me you know, that I shouldn't come out to my parents, and I want to say to them, it's too late. You know, you come out to your friends at school, it's simply too late, because hmm. they, um, it'll get back to your parents. Um, yeah, And I think a lot and of young then, people don't realize The danger they put themselves in Or can put themselves in
2: um,
1: Because they feel comfortable sharing With their friends who they are It's, uh, I, it's hard to imagine being Well, it's so hard to imagine being a teenager now um, It's such a different It's an interesting um, It's an interesting journey they go on I mean,
2: like, specifically, you know uh, I talk to so many kids And sometimes, I, most of the time The kids don't say their names But most of them don't care and are out and have supportive families, but a lot, I have ones that have obviously not have supportive families, and yeah. um, or they're just coming out, they're just coming into the this preferred pronouns. Like, um, but it's such, it's so. Uh, there's so much across the board. Like, I, I can't even. If you listen to the episodes and stuff, it's like they're just they're just the stories are so different. And some of them do it yeah. through all different mediums, right? They do it through uh, their music or poetry or right. how they dress right. or. Or um, uh, some of them are really, really young. Like I have like nine, ten, twelve-year-old, thirteen-year-olds out conditioning yep. trains. and uh, then some of them just came out at twenty-three,
1: twenty-four, and then um,
2: yeah. So it's an, it, it, I just find it pretty it's, fascinating. Yeah, um, it's
1: it's really interesting, and I want to go back to the education um, piece for just a moment. I um, uh, participated in two professional development trainings here in New York City, part of the Department of Education's. Uh, uh, effort to teach teachers to teach this new LGBTQ history material. Mm-hmm. And I was I'm working with uh, History Unerased um there at unerased.org dot org for anyone who's interested. Uh and Deb Fowler and her crew were leading the training. And what was so interesting to me um was the challenges faced by educators who are not familiar with this material um, or educators who are familiar with this material. Um, the challenge of bringing it into the classroom... Um, hey, let's start with people who are not familiar with the material. All kinds of things come up um, that they may not know how to deal with. What happens if the principal walks in when you're teaching this for the first time and the principal's not supportive? Um, or you have right. a student in your class who is very challenging and goes after the material and another student mm-hmm. comes out because of that. How do you deal with right. that? Um, spontaneously comes out in class. Um, yep. And for, I, there was one one educator um, in the workshop who is totally out himself, perfectly comfortable, um, but works at a school in a predominantly Caribbean immigrant neighborhood, yeah. um, where there are teachers who won't teach this material and where there are parents who'd be very upset about it. So I was struck by um, how important it is for teachers to get professional development in this material. That we can't just drop Major. resources or curricula on teachers or even principals and expect this material to get taught. It's a very complex and contentious area. Um, I am thrilled to see states like New Jersey and Illinois and California um, require the teaching of this material, but most often it's not funded in a way that makes it possible for the material to be developed or for teachers and other educators to be trained in the material. So I need a long, long, long way to go. Um, um, but I'm hopeful, I'm hopeful.
2: Yeah. It's a, it's a hopeful thing. Like even, even here, like we um, educators for equality was created through guard state equality, which is the basically becoming the training model Uh um, for teachers to go. And they've done a few open, basically town halls with the curriculum and they're going to pilot it in 10 schools for like a year. Well, kind of on the back burner right now, a little bit because of COVID, but um, it will set up itself for the fall and see how it goes. But the biggest thing that I even kept saying inside of this training and or inside of creating this is that we need to teach them the empathy and the knowledge on how to deal with it. If a kid is like saying words like that are negative and like, what do you do? Like what you just said. And like, cause if you don't have those trainings, there's really no point of teaching this because then it's not going to go and it's not going to be able to go anywhere. Right. Um, and also it's in every subject in the state of New Jersey. So It's just incorporating um, same-sex everything inside of, like, even math problems and um, just incorporating it as language uh, so it becomes the norm. And it's a big undertaking, of course, uh, but the biggest thing, like, going back to that is, yes, the history is really important, but you can't teach the history if the person refuses to for whatever reason, or if they don't even have the training to know what they don't know.
1: Yeah, um, yeah. I would be scared as a teacher to go into a classroom if I didn't know the history. And, and I know yeah. the history really well now, but yeah. I'm an expert on it, and I'm, I'm still actually right. a pretty superficial expert. But what is it like for a teacher in social studies, for example, who knows nothing right. about this history and is coming to it fresh? How do they... Deal with with uh, bringing this into the classroom and then getting questions about things they they have no idea just the material alone is complicated
2: it, yeah, yeah, and like sexuality is going to come up, and like yep. a lot of people think we're teaching them sex, and that's not what there is There's health education for that, but that's not what this particular subject is, and so forth yeah um, so in the the process of you doing all of these interviews throughout the years and capturing um I mean you might get this question but I love it's a good question so what who it's not so much who was the most amazing person but who <laughs> really just who really just like who stayed with you me to, yeah like who really stayed with you to the point where you're like I will use them as an example in my life for myself
1: and for others and and really um, a few. use that person a few yeah. Uh Wendell Sayers um, African American mm-hmm. man who was sent to the Mayo Clinic in 1920 where he was diagnosed um, as a homosexual, he was 16 years old. Um, mm. His story, I find an extraordinary one, and just my experience of interviewing him when he was in his 80s, um, was unforgettable. Edith Ide, better known as Lisa Ben, who published the first newsletter for lesbians on her typewriter at her office at RKO Radio Pictures in Hollywood when she was in her 20s, she wow. typed it on her office typewriter. It was called Vice Versa, America's Gayest Magazine. Um, and she also uh, wrote her own music and then her own lyrics to popular songs that she sang in the gay clubs because she didn't like the kind of uh, entertainment that she found in the gay clubs then, where she felt put down gay people. Um, oh. She was amazing. She did a small concert for me on her front porch in Burbank, California. Um, I asked her to play her music for me. Um, those who stay with me, Morty Manford, who, is, who like me, is a Jew from Queens, um, mm-hmm and grew up a decade earlier than I did. He um, was an activist from his early 20s, co-founded PFLAG with his mom. Um, Wow. He was an amazing activist and confronted the then-mayor of the city of New York, Mayor Lindsay, on the city's treatment of gay people. He's someone who I really take inspiration from. He died um, around the time the book was published in 1992 of AIDS, and was, I think, 41 at the time he died. So he's someone I connected to on a very personal level as, as someone who's like me. Um, but there are, there are lots of other people in, in my archive who, um, who inspire me. Um, and okay. whose stories I feel were, um, are essential listening. Um, one of the things I've really enjoyed hearing from young listeners in particular is that uh, they say that they feel like they now have ancestors that they have grandparents that there are people who came before them cool give them a sense of pride in who they are and a context for their own lives
2: yeah I mean that's it I mean for sure like when it comes to anything historical um, that's a really big moment in history, like specifically, like um wars or the Holocaust or um anything of a, uh, the the sorry, Stonewall riots, like anything that's really monumental, those are if you can dig underneath those and get to the people that did the other work, yeah, I feel like that extends your family, you know, and that's like, oh, it's not just the um the uh, whatchamacall- like the bigger. Happening if that did happen, but there's like thousands of other people or hundreds of whatever right, it is right. underneath all right. of that that have
1: done so much to make such a difference. Yeah, I mean, just even the Pride March, which we take for granted mm-hmm. now, although we're not having it this year, um, right. but pri- Pride marches and celebrations are held all over the world. How did that happen? Um, right. And I'm, I'm betting most people don't know it started in 1965 with an annual Mm -hmm. protest march in Philadelphia uh, called Reminder Day on July 4th, um, every year from 1965 to 1969. And that the decision to move that annual march to New York City on the anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising for 1970 was a decision made by a group of existing homophile organizations. They were called homophile organizations. At a conference in November of 1969, it was voted on. Um, And the resolution was drawn up by a group of young activists who thought that it was important for that march to be held uh, on the anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising. And that they also enlisted other organizations at that time to do the same thing. So there were four marches the first year. And now there are how many? Um, I always say now that the organizers will inherit the earth. It's not a spontaneous event like Stonewall that, that that, that changes the world. Um, it was right. the people who harnessed the energy released at Stonewall through organizing that changed the world. I mean, we wouldn't have had everything that came after without the Stonewall uprising, but that was just the just the match. That's it. Yeah.
2: yeah. Ooh, it's interesting. I do, I do uh, LGBT work over in India, and wow. Um, wow, wow. yeah. So, and I went to my first year. I went there. It was in, they I go to I go to Mumbai. That's where I hang out with um, the people I work with. And that pride march, is, coincidentally, was just – it ha- had to have been the closest thing to one of the first marches ever because you don't – you're not there. You weren't allowed – you are not allowed to have any floats or anything like that. You could only march around the, this area, like basically a big loop, and then come back to where you sat, and then you have to break it up quickly. But you can start with a stage – start with the protests, start with the shouting and the, all the things and the, the performances. But then you literally, we marched through cars. Like, there was traffic, of course, because it's Mumbai, India. But, like, we were marching through cars. Huh. I'm, like, chanting in um, Hindi, and, like, it's, like, this crazy, crazy moment in my life that I'll never forget, because it was just, it was a march for the purpose of human rights, queer rights over in India, and that's what it was for. That's all it was for. It, it was, must like have been we are wild. Hum- it's crazy and beautiful, and yeah. I wasn't scared or anything. Like they had a lot of protection, um, and yeah, I just it was ten thousand people, and they just went in a circle. Wow! And they came back to the same spot they began, and then it broke up like it never happened. They had like a whole Pride weekend, but that was the march specifically, and uh, and it was just the march. It was just signs and chanting and saying. This is who we are
1: you have well, to that's us we are. And that's human. what the march was like in New York City in nineteen seventy and it's what the march the Queer Liberation March was like last year on the fiftieth anniversary of Stonewall here in New York. Mm-hmm. There was an alternate march yeah. which I marched in. Which right. I actually I loved. It was terrific. It was a real protest march.
2: Like the old you mean it, Exactly. It wasn't you mean it wasn't all the big sponsors and everything? <laughs> no, was that just was marching the, then,
1: that was a separate march. That was um the the Queer Liberation oh. March was held in the morning and then the big the uh, Right. The, the march that we've come cool. to know in New York with all the floats and the corporate sponsors that, that came after, so we had about I think I've forty. 40 I've that three times. Ah, well, the, the queer liberation march I think had about forty thousand people, and we, fought, we took the original Amazing. route up um, Sixth Avenue to Central Park.
2: Uh, for That's a so
1: cool. I did hear about that. Um,
2: I did not do that one because I was going to be doing the big one, and that one lasted more than I could ever get. In fact, an hour I'm not sure it's over I, yet. <laughs> no, it went on for, like, I think we set foot, so we were standing around waiting to march because the people who I do work with India, they came over and they were, it, was, it was part of the Swiss Ally Fund.
1: Oh, float. you were uh, Was it? Did you come over with Prince?
2: Um, yeah, Prince Mavendra. Mm-hmm. Yes. that's my that's who I work with. Yeah.
1: Oh well, yeah. he he is um, he is a close friend of one of my neighbors.
2: Cool. So, yeah. Uh,
1: so yes, I know exactly He's who the light. He is.
2: yeah Yeah. so i I work with him and his husband and they have this lgbt center in the (laughs) middle of dust country farm country on a holy river in a place you never ever 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 would think there would be a rainbow flag flying wow and they've they've created it's all um funded through uh, just fundraising because he had they're not he was cut ties from his family back in 2006 Uh the whole thing and um, so he's self-made and it is the coolest God. If you, I would love for you to experience it and ever and come with me one time because it is I'm, like such a cool place to go and do this work. And now it's okay. It's not illegal to be gay over there. And, no, uh, I
1: know. No, no. I would absolutely love to. Pretty, I was in India, um, 10 years ago. Um, and okay. Spread my mother's ashes on the Ganges at Varanasi.
2: Wow. Cool.
1: My mother had an Indian wow. guru, guru for many years.
2: Oh, very cool. All right, so it's totally connected, and India is a magical place. It's kind of hard to explain to people unless you've been there.
1: Um, it's, um, I think it's, Im- it's impossible to explain. Um, it is, yeah, New yeah, York City it is. is hard to it's explain just, to people who don't know big cities, but India but is impossible
2: no, to explain unless you've been much. there and stood Go in the to Mumbai. Our... Go to, yeah, yeah, exactly. Go just stand in the middle of somewhere and just experience it, yeah. and you're like, what is happening?
1: I will never forget um, standing in the middle of a, of a traffic circle in Varanasi. Um, <laughs> Uh, when the lights went out and it was a, it was I'll never forget it it was uh, it was amazing It, it's
2: it, yeah it's it's, uh, it's powerful and I mean we even did one of our workshops I do workshop that I take there we did one of our workshops in the palace of the prince where there's now a ho- turning into a hotel we did a workshop in that palace with the same with the same people that burned his effigies like in the town square wow <laughs> in 2006 and they came to this workshop and like where it was so weird to be in the palace doing our thing and, and experience having people experience this. So I am drawn to that place forever. I'm going to go back. I'm going back again uh, next year. And the same time I always go at the end of January, beginning of February with my podcast and, and, and just uh, run workshops with them and stuff. So it's pretty, it's pretty cool. Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty, pretty cool stuff. And that's why I'm so hooked on what you do and how you do it. And um, by the way, Side note, who created your
1: website? It is like the most amazing website ever. Thank you. Um, Well, we had a website designer. I was very clear on what we wanted. I wanted something Uh that was easy to use. um, So easy. And I worked with um, a website designer who worked at the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention when I worked there. So um, he's just terrific, and it's simple, straightforward, and um, and I was very uh, – from the beginning, I knew I didn't want to just do a podcast. I wanted to uh, have a fully-fledged website that, per, that allowed listeners to deepen their experience by looking at uh, archival photos and we essentially do a magazine article with every episode with links for additional information. So um, it's great for students, and it's great for anybody who's interested in digging deeper than just, than just listening to the episode. Uh, that That's my, uh,
2: my next step. Yeah, yeah. That's my next step in the, the cuz people don't also understand podcasts are really hard to do and you have to do a lot of work. Yes. <laughs> yes. People are like I'm going to start a podcast during COVID. I was like, all right, when you go back to work, you let me know how it keeps up cuz it ain't easy. No, uh, no it's <laughs>
1: not. And if you have a website that goes along with it, it's it's a lot of uh, a lot of work and also it's it's costly. Um, our our budget mm-hmm. is um and our budget's taken a big hit this year, so that's that's all the more challenging. Um, but it's costly. I don't even have a
2: budget. I'm sorry, you don't have a budget? I, I don't even have a budget. I just do it for my house. <laughs> or I travel. I mean, I do have a budget. I have a Patreon that I'm now um, pushing and getting people to give me money. So that's actually been really helpful. Um, well, it will be helpful once I can leave my house uh, properly.
1: Right, when that day comes. Yeah. But I, I absolutely love your website. I think it's
2: very um, informative, and it's pretty simple, everyone. It's makinggayhistory.org. Nope,
1: MakingGayHistory. That's the main website, but the, the podcast website is makinggayhistory.com. Oh, okay, Making make, oh, Okay, I'm on the... Uh,
2: oh, because I guess you can explore your podcast on that so you hit the rainbow flag. I right,
1: right, exactly. But if you want to go directly to the podcast, it. it's makinggayhistory.com.
2: So makinggayhistory.com for the podcast, but yeah. makinggayhistory.org for everything. Right. Else, right. Which is right. fantastic. Um, just one more thing before we go. Yeah. Uh, inside of all this work... Oh, by the way, before I forget, I do want to ask this. Are you... Is there... Uh, any idea of, like, ever doing, like, a documentary around this, or just this is well?
1: What... interesting that you should ask. Um, I've worked on documentaries around this. Uh, we, did a, we did one. Okay. On, I, I co-produced one on Stonewall uh, for the New York Times, the OpDocs page. It's Stonewall, Making of a Monument. Um, several people are doing documentaries at the moment. We're providing audio f- uh, to them. But there is new now a Making Gay History uh, play. It's a documentary theater version of the Making Gay History podcast, drawing on 20 different people um, who were uh, featured in the podcast, 18 of them from the book and two of them from the podcast. And we debuted on February 28th at the Provincetown Playhouse in Greenwich Village. Um, It's a 90-minute play, and uh, we have just begun licensing it to high schools. That is very cool.
2: You should definitely, like, talk to the people at the Virginary Theater Company, because they would love this. But this is what they do. This is who they are. This is everything they stand for um, in San Diego.
1: Ah, uh, right. Um, cool. Yeah. Yeah. We're just beginning the the licensing process now. Um, very cool. We'll, we'll see where it goes. Um, yeah. It was thrilling to see it, to see the people I interviewed come to life on stage. Sure. Um, and it's, it's so cool. And it's directly from the transcripts, so it's. Uh, oh, I it's, love that. It's called Making Gay History Before
2: Stonewall. That's so. That is like I would. I would. I love it.
1: It's no words, like, just,
2: you know, done towards – I love that. That's fantastic.
1: I will send you – I'll send you a a link to the video of the March 1st performance. um, It's for your your eyes only.
2: Yeah, of course. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's great. So I usually – this is how I usually end my podcast. Uh, What is something you would tell queer youth, my listeners, like some – words of wisdom, what have you, uh, inside of keeping gay history going?
1: My, my well, I, I sometimes think I'm not very wise. I've made almost every mistake one can make in life. Um, but in terms, of, in terms of where we are in history with the LGBTQ uh, civil rights movement, I think uh, the movement now moves into the classroom. That there's, there's an opportunity now for young people to educate the educators To bring this material to their teachers because it's history that people need to know. Um, In terms of their personal lives, I think it's important to be true to oneself, but it's also important to take care of yourself, that you don't have to change the world on your own, um, that your first priority priority should be your safety and your well-being um, before you head out to change the world. Often I find, uh, I've heard from young people who want to leap in and make a difference and they're not emotionally prepared for it. Uh, so the first thing to do is make sure you have a solid support group, whether it's your family, um, friends, um, and or people at school, or just an adult in your life um, who you can count on to support you through thick and thin.
0: Well, that was a great interview, and I think everybody needs to check out Making Gay History podcast. Um, also, for the more information on Making Gay History, go to makinggayhistory.com or makinggayhistory.org um, you can find all the information the links the um, the history why it was started and you could just really get um, lost in all of this amazing um, queer history that Eric has captured through his entire career so I always forget to say this please don't forget to download and tell your friends all about Queer Teen Podcast it's not just for queens it's for everybody Oh, sorry. It's not just for queer teens. It's for queer everybody. Um, so, yeah. Please tell all of your friends. You can download it on Spotify, iTunes, Apple Music. Um, or else. Oh, and Podbean. So, yeah. And that's it. And, of course, I want to thank my producers, my um, on-air producers, Jose De La Cuesta and Michael J. Gabrowski. And thank you for listening to another episode of QT, Queer Teen Podcast encouraging the next generation of queer youth from across the world to stand up for what's right. And remember, listen, learn, love.